Welcome to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. We hope and pray this message challenges and inspires you to live out God's truth in your life. John chapter 2, the Gospel of John. So if you know your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're going to be in that John. There's some other Johns at the end of the, end of the Bible near Revelation. Don't go there. We're not going to be there. We're going to be in this, the first John, the, the first time we see the word John in, uh, in the Gospel. So as you're turning there, I, I, I do want to mention, uh, the pastor's so great talking about the resources, and I just want to share with you a little bit about them. Uh, I have such a heart that I want to help your marriages. I want to help your families in, in any way that I can. That's the only reason I have these things. So here's the deal. If you can't afford them, just go get them, okay? I don't care. It's not about me making money. This is about you equipping yourself to, to, to grow in your faith and in your relationships. So the, uh, he, I don't know if he mentioned the marriage handbook. This is a great tool to improve your marriage. It's a great way to get on the same page in your marriage. So I highly encourage you to get that. Um, then he talked about the hero handbook. Just for guys, women, you don't get to read it. And then the love song DVD. I did a series through the, through the book of Song of Solomon, and uh, the only reason I have this is because people demanded that we put it on video, and I told the, I told the folks at the marriage thing this, um, uh, I, men everywhere thank me for this. Okay, Song of Solomon, lots of love, lots of romance in here. So anyways, men, go get that. Watch that with your wife. And then I want to share a little, this is the only one I really care about sharing a lot about. This is um, the story, it's called The Adventures of Cooper the Turtle, and uh, in the back of the book, it tells my, my story. My, son, my, we have, my wife and I have five children, five boys, and uh, our second son is named Cooper, and uh, he has Down syndrome. And uh, our whole story is in the back of this book, so you can, I, I would encourage you just to go and read it. But um, I wrote this story because it became a bedtime story I told my kids. Uh, it was just a thing we'd gather up, if we were, especially if we were on vacation or something, we'd sit around and I'd just start making up a story about Cooper the turtle. And so the idea is that Cooper the turtle uh, always wants to go on an, an adventure and he, he can't pull it off. He has bigger dreams than he has the ability to pull it off. And so he has friends that help him do it. And then it all falls apart and then it all works out in the end, right? Because it's a children's story. It has to. And uh, at least that's what they told me. And uh, so, uh, but it's a great story about friendship. And one of the reasons why I really like to push this book is because there are people like you, parents like you, who um, tell your kids to be friends with uh, kids like mine. Uh, so my son Cooper, he goes into school, and all these kids from families like yours just rally around him. They show him kindness. They show him love. They accept, accept him with all of his differences. And uh, we are just grateful parents for that. And so this book is dedicated to your children who do that. And uh, if there's anyone in this church that has a child with special needs, um, this would be my gift to you. Just go out there and say, Andy said to give me one and just get one. And, uh, and then, but for all the rest of you, this is a great children's story to read before bedtime. It's just a great story of friendship. So I hope that you'll pick that up. So um, we're going to jump into this uh, message today. And I love talking about my family. And it's a, our family's a lot of fun, and I sometimes have to catch myself because I'll tell these stories about my family, and people might think that I'm, like, down on my family. I love my family, man. I have a great time with my kids, but we have five of them. <laughs> every time we count, there's five, like, every single time. So we have five children, and they're all boys. And so there's, like, I don't know what happens when men get together or boys get together. Whatever brain power they had individually, you would think that two of them together would equal double the brain power. No, no, no. It's division. It, it, it's like now it's half the brain power. Then you put three of them together. You, you cut it in half again, and then it again, and then again. That's where we live. That is our house. My wife lives in a fraternity house. 
There's nothing but boys everywhere. She gets so frustrated at us sometimes. I say us because half the time I'm in the group that she calls the boys, right? And then other time I'm trying to be on her side some of the time. She came to the table one night. We were getting ready for dinner. So you just imagine every parent, particularly you moms, you get it, right? Whatever happened, well, I don't know what it is. At 4.30 p.m., the demons come out of our children. Like it is like, like, like take over the house. It's horrible. 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. It's like my wife calls it the bewitching hour. Like, it's what happens. So the kids are going crazy. So my kids, and I don't know what their problem is, they just take their clothes off when they get in the house. Like, after school, they walk in, and they just start taking clothes off. And so she doesn't understand. So she's, we, were, we were getting ready for dinner. All the food's, like, getting at the table. We're setting the table, getting all this stuff, and it's just chaos in our house. So she, she loses it. Occasionally, my wife will reach that point, and it's like there's no stopping her. It's the point of no return. It's just like duck and cover. Get out of the way. Like, so she loses it. And she's, she says, everybody sit down, be quiet, and put on pants. Like she said, I mean, she was so intense, and it was like she was serious. And we all like looked down, and I, thankfully I had pants on that time. But all of the, every one of our boys had no pants on. And I was like, how does this happen? What in the world is going on in my house? So anyway, so we live in the world of, of family life and in the trenches of parenting. We get it. We understand those, that, that tension. And we, we have those days. We're just like you. We just sort of hit the bed at the end of the night and go, man, I hope we can start fresh tomorrow. <laughs> like it was one of those days, right? And we just need to start over. And I'll just tell you, uh, just from a parenting side of things, uh, I, I think God was talking to parents when he said, uh, my mercies are new every morning. And I mean that. I think he's talking to parents, man. That, hey, you know what? You can start fresh tomorrow. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. And your kids certainly aren't perfect. But you know what? You can get a fresh start tomorrow. You know, if you had to, if you had to just forfeit today, that's okay. Tomorrow's another day, and we'll start fresh tomorrow. Sometimes we just need to hear that from the Lord. And these moments of chaos uh, stir us up a lot, and probably more than we even want to admit, that we feel sometimes like things are just out of control. And we laugh about some of those moments in our families and with our kids and things like that. But I think if we were honest, if we were willing to really admit it, I think if we drop below the surface of some of those issues, I think we could probably raise some really serious questions about what's going on in our own lives. Some of you walked in this room today, and the chaos in your life is your marriage. And you're married, and you're living in the same house together, but it's barely a marriage. And you're not sure how long this is going to last. You know it can't last real long like it is. But you're not sure what to do. Others of you, we talk about kids and we laugh about our little ones and we have a great time with our, our little kid issues. But you're not dealing with little kid issues. You're dealing with big kid issues. You're dealing with the fact that your adult children or one of your adult children is a wayward child. You taught them right. You raised them right. You raised them in church. And now they're off the map doing whatever is happening. And you just want your prodigal child to come home. Some of you are dealing with infertility and your heart breaks because you want a child so bad and you have prayed and prayed and prayed and you still don't have a child. Those are big issues. Some of you have people in your family, maybe it's even you. You are sick, you have a disease, you have a cancer and you're not sure where this, this story is going to end. See, there's some real issues in all of our lives. We need God to come through in a big way. And I dare say, because we, we, we hesitate to use words like this, but if we, were, if we were just super honest, 
if we were willing to be bold and just tell God what we wanted, I think we would say something like this. God, I need a miracle right here in my life right now. I need a miracle. God, I, I need you to do something that only you can do. And I'm not, I'm, that's not church talk. God, I really need it. We've run out of options here. I need you to do something. I wonder if you'd be willing to be that honest today in your heart. Would you be willing to, at least in your heart, say, God, that, that sounds a little bit like me. Because as we dive into God's Word today, I want to invite you in, into this posture. I think posture's a big deal. You know, um, you know, when you're growing up, your mom and dad always said, you know, sit up straight, right? But posture's a big deal. But spiritually, I think posture is a big deal. So I want you to just get this picture in your mind, spiritually speaking. What if your posture today is not the typical come-to-church posture? You know what the typical come-to-church posture is? Not, not just physically, but in our spirits, in our, in our inner life. My posture is this when I'm typical in church. I sit down and I lean back. I just sort of take it all in. I'm not real. I don't have a lot of expectation. I just showed up to church. I'm really hoping it doesn't go long because I want to go to lunch and I want to get back home and get after my day, right? That's just kind of how we all are. We just sort of sit back and relax. I wonder if today, if just for a few minutes, I promise I won't go long. Would you lean forward today? Spiritually, would you say, God, I'm not just going to have a typical day at church. God, I want you to meet me today. God, and this is the prayer, would you meet with me? I want to meet with you. I want to hear from you. And I want to respond to you. Would you be willing to get around that today? God, I want to meet with you. I want to hear from you. And I want to respond to you. I think that would be a game changer for you today as we open up God's Word. So in John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, uh, t take a look here. This is a great, incredible story. John, uh, the, the, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, the best friend of Jesus, writes a document that he calls the Gospel According to John. It's basically his take on the life of Jesus. And he is going to show us some things about Jesus that help us make sense of him. We need to make sense of Jesus in our lives, and that was John's mission. So John does this incredible thing. It's something I, I, I try to do. I don't know if I do it perfectly all the time, but my goal in preaching is to reach as high as I can into the things of God and bring it down to the lowest possible shelf so everybody can digest it. That's my goal every time I write a sermon. That was John's goal in writing this gospel. He uses the most common form of Greek. He makes it as accessible to as many people as possible. It's why when many of you became a Christian for the first time, you were like, what do I do? Someone suggested to you, start reading the book of John, didn't they? The Gospel of John. Why is that the starting place? Because it was designed to meet people right where they are. That was why it was written this way. So John says, in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we, we automatically know, if you've been in church for 15 minutes, you know what's about to happen, right? Jesus is going to do this first miracle, and it is the miracle of turning what? Water into wine. That's right. He's going to turn water into wine. So we already know where this is going. The question is, why in the world, in chapter 2, does John bring it up? My whole Christian experience, growing up in church, I have known about Jesus turning water into wine. I just have never quite known why it's so significant. I know it was his first miracle, but why is it so significant? Why wasn't his first miracle recorded as like healing a blind person or casting out a demon? Why this? What's the significance here? 
I believe it is enormously significant for our lives. So John says, he was at a wedding in Cana. The mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited with his disciples. So Jesus went to a party. Whoa! Some of you grew up thinking Jesus is like all prim and proper and antisocial. No, Jesus is a, f- a friend. He grew up in Galilee. This was probably a, a family he grew up with. He knew these people. See, in a wedding in those days is different than a wedding in our day. What do we do when we get a wedding invitation? Oh my gosh, it's on a Saturday in the middle of the day. Right? If you're going to get married, get, at least get, get married first thing in the morning or, or the late in the evening. Right? Why in the middle of my Saturday? I'm going I'm to get half my yard mode, right? And then I got to go and, and go to the wedding. Everybody, we kind of have that, like, okay, we're going to go to the wedding, unless it's your wedding. And then it's the most important thing in the world, right? And so, but we, we, we look at weddings differently in our culture. In those days, it wasn't just a, a chunk of your Saturday you have to give up to go to the wedding. It was a week. It'd be multiple days of celebration. It was a community event. It was everybody that you've known and loved in your community. They would come together and help your family celebrate the addition of this new, new person, the connecting of these two families, the, the, the coming together of a bride and a groom. It was a beautiful celebration, but it was a big deal. Weddings were a big deal. So the hospitality that was provided was a really big deal. So look what John says in uh, verse 3. When the, the wine ran out, uh-oh. I just want you to know that if you lived in ancient Israel in the days when John wrote his gospel toward the end of the first century and you read this, you would go, oh no. That's not a good moment. He says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So this is, a, this is the crisis moment. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus, identifying this enormous problem in the midst of this supposed celebration. See, in those days at a wedding, you would have... A master of the, of the feast, a master of the ceremonies. His job was abundantly clear. And you would probably have an uncle do this or a, a cousin or a friend, someone that you trusted. This person would be the master of the feast. And he essentially took his orders from the bridegroom, the husband in the situation. And he was the, the person who managed the inventory at the party. So you would say, hey, we're doing a five-day wedding. We got five days of food. Make it last. That was your job as the master of the feast. You would make sure everybody's got their glasses full. Everybody's got their plates taken care of. Everybody's got enough food to eat and enough drink to drink. That's how you handled it. So for the wine to run out, it was a major problem. It was an embarrassment. This would have been the talk all over Galilee. Oh, were you guys at the Jones wedding? Oh, M G, right? You, you're like, oh goodness, this is terrible. They ran out of wine. Oh, how offensive. It would have just been this terrible thing that happened. The embarrassment of this moment was well known. So much so, and this is what's great about Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't give her enough credit, do we? She was an observant woman. She recognizes this right off the bat. See, she's not just trying to consume this wedding like most people do. I do enough weddings. I do tons of weddings. Do you know what people, why people go to weddings? To consume at the reception. That's why people go to weddings, right? Free meal, right? And it's even worse when it's an open bar. I want to tell these couples, by the way, if you're planning a wedding, let me just give you some free advice here. 
An open bar is like an invitation for people to be really, really dumb at your wedding. They're going to make really bad choices. It's going to all show up on the dance floor. It's a bad scene. Like, just don't do Save all of your friends the embarrassment and don't have an open bar, right? It's, it's an, and besides that, it's incredibly expensive. So, but that's what's happening. Everybody at the wedding is just consuming, and Mary is heads up. She says, oh, no, they've run out of wine. She's immediately feeling the embarrassment that this family would be going through. She's immediately caring about these people who would be talked about for months and months and months. And so she says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And this brings up this question about wine. And I know that someone would grab me after the service and they're going to reprimand me because, so, uh, you know, how can you talk about wine in church and all that stuff? Let me just say, wine in the Bible represented God's favor. It represented the blessing of God. So you can have your opinion about alcohol and wine and all that kind of stuff. But the point of this is not about whether it's okay. Is, is it a sin to drink? Is it a sin not to drink? Like Jesus is not getting into that debate. He is, he is well, he's well aware of the, this is a, a picture of God's blessing. In, in Psalm chapter uh, 104, 13 through 15, it says, From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow and the livestock, uh, for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So the idea is, God, you have blessed us with this abundance. So when we celebrate with wine and with food, it is a, it is a signal of your, it's a, a symbol of your blessing. So we receive it as that. We receive it as your blessing. So the fact that this, at this wedding, the wine ran out was, was like a picture of God's blessing running out. It was a picture of people who didn't care about the blessing of God. They were just caring about themselves. So the reason that wine runs out at this wedding is because all people care about is themselves. They're just consumers. And do you know why you and I suffer from the same sense of the absence of God's blessing, the absence, it feels like God's not with us. It feels like the favor of God is not on us. Do you know why we feel that way? Because we consume his blessing and we forget about him. We, we, we take the gifts, we forget about the giver, don't we? We're just consumers. We're just takers. And God even told us, he says, it's more blessed to give than to receive, didn't he? But when we get into this mode of total con consumption, right? It's why people complain when they come to church. I can say that because I'm not your pastor. But you'll pick on things at church. Do you know why? Because you're looking solely through the lens of a consumer. Because we devour the blessings of God and we forget about the, the God who has blessed us. And so the backdrop of this is even more critical to understand than even how we compare it to our lives. John is talking about the nation of Israel. See, the nation of Israel had come to this point where they had forgotten who God really was in their life. They were no longer looking for God. They were just looking for what God could give them, right? To them, God was a little more than a, a spiritual Santa Claus. Get, free us from Rome. Save us from our oppression. Get us out of the trouble we're in. But you know what? As soon as you do, we're going to turn our back on you, God. That was the story of Israel over and over and over again. Sounds like our lives, doesn't it? I'm in trouble. God, save me. 
God rescues us. He saves us. Okay, God, I'm good now. I'll go about my life. Sounds a lot like the way we live because we're consumers. God, give me what I want. I don't really want you. I just want what you give. And that was the reality that is pictured in this absence of wine. The wine runs out. God's favor has run out. This is a picture of Israel. This is a picture of our own lives. It's a picture of chaos. And so, the other thing this indicates is not only this overwhelming obsession to consume, but on the flip side, it reveals a lack of proper leadership. The master of the feast isn't paying attention. He's not watching the consumption of the wine. He's not stretching things out like he should. He's, making, he's not making sure everyone is being taken care of. He's, he's not paying attention. And a lot of the suffering we have in our own lives comes for the same reason. We have bad leadership in our lives. And we are usually the source of that bad leadership. It's our own choices, right? We dig our own graves most of the time. And so we have all these issues in our lives, and the reality is it's because we're not paying attention to the things of God. So we need God to restore that into our lives. Now, this is interestingly, so we, we find ourselves in a situation somewhere between selfishly devouring everything God's given us and living in the effect of poor leadership. Everybody in this room probably lands somewhere between both of those. That is the, that is the nature of chaos in our lives. And so Mary says to Jesus, she like literally, it seems like she elbows him. Hey, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Jesus knows what she's implying here. Look in verse 4. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I'm going to give you all of the men in this room a little advice. Okay. I used to wear this bracelet that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? I'm going to tell you that works like almost, almost all of the time. Except when he calls his mother woman. Uh, you can try it. I mean, you can go home. Like call your mom and just, you know, woman, try that with the woman in your life. And just see how far that gets you. Uh, that may just be one moment we just don't do what Jesus did. Okay, just try Be careful there. So Jesus says to her, woman, and like he's indignant. Why are you bringing me into this? What does this have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. So we start asking the question, why does Jesus resist this? Because Jesus knows the moment he performs a miracle, the clock starts to the cross. So far in his life, he has not revealed himself to be the Messiah yet. He has not revealed himself to be the Son of God yet. He has not come out in that way where everybody knows there's something different about Jesus. He was known as a, t a good teacher. He was known as a rabbi. He, he had people following him. But he was not known as the Messiah yet. And Jesus knows my hour has not yet come. The moment I perform a miracle for everyone to see, the clock starts ticking to the cross. Jesus knew why he came. He knew what he came to do. And so Jesus says, my hour's not yet come. And you would think that anybody who, I mean, Mary knew who Jesus was, right? The angel told her. This is the son of God. She knows. You would think she would respect his wishes. Look in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do you know who does this sort of thing? My mom. I was abundantly clear. 
this has nothing to do with me, Mom. Why am I involved? Just do whatever he says. That's, what my, that's exactly what my mom would say. I, Mary teaches us something here, I believe, about prayer. Because our relationship with Jesus is not sitting next to him at a table at a wedding. Our relationship with Jesus is in the spiritual realm where we pray to him. We pray to God. And do you know what I think we do oftentimes with our prayers? We have real needs, right? We have real chaos in our lives. We have real marriage problems, real problems with our kids, real career issues, real financial strain in our lives. And we have these questions. We have real people who are sick and, and dying, and we're asking God. We want him to heal them or save the situation or help us in some way. So here's what we do. Here's what I do. God, I want you to heal my friend of cancer. Uh, if you have time, if you don't mind, and if it's not too much trouble, and only if it's your will. See how I backed out of that prayer request? God, I want you to heal my marriage. We've been at odds too long. We need to be unified. God, would you restore my marriage? Uh, if you don't mind. And I, I know that I'm not worthy, and I know that I've made I've done a lot of problems. This is partly my fault, but I really just want you to, And we back out of it, don't we? Mary doesn't back up at all. He says, it's not my time. She's like, blah, blah, blah. Do what he says. It's, it's amazing. Her boldness is inspiring. Would you be so bold in your prayers? Here's the thing. The worst thing he's going to say is no. The worst thing he's going to say is no. Why are we so afraid to pray, God, I ask you, heal my friend. Why don't we ask him? Oh, we're afraid of being wrong. What, as if your sick friend's going to blame you for not being healed? It's not on you. You don't get to heal people. You don't have that power. God does. I'll tell you what you should do. Next time you pray for someone with cancer, you pray with no excuses. God, I pray you remove the cancer today. Amen. Not if it's your will. If it's his will, he'll do it. Why do we have to remind him what his will is? Like God's forgotten. Oh, thank you for reminding me that it's my prerogative. Thank you so much. No, he doesn't need our help. But he loves to hear our bold request. Mary says, just do whatever he says. Which, by the way, I could spend a whole sermon talking about that phrase alone. Do you want to know where the miracle starts? Doing whatever Jesus says. You want to know where the miracle starts in your marriage? Do whatever he has already said. You want to know where the miracle happens in your finances? Do what he said. Oh, Jesus talked about money? Yeah, actually, more about money than any other subject, interestingly. You want to know what Jesus says about your children? That's where the miracle starts. It's with what he says. Go, go to his word. Obey what he's already said. Jesus calms our chaos through surrender and obedience, always. So then the question is, what did Jesus say? Look what it says in verse uh, 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the uh, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the very brim. And then he said to them, draw some water out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But why have you kept, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Jesus does 
the miracle at the request of his mother, at her outright denial of what he says. And so she says, do whatever he says. So what did he say? He said, go get those stone water jars over there. See, everybody knew what those stone water jars were. They were designed to be filled with water so that when people would go to worship, they would wash their hands, sometimes all the way up to their elbows. Sometimes some people would go overboard, they'd wash their whole bodies with this water to purify themselves before they'd go to the temple. It was a, it was a religious ritual that was essential because the idea was you dare not approach God in an impure way. You dare not approach God unclean. You purify yourselves. You wash up before you approach, the, approach God. So Jesus is not, by the way, just looking for any old jar of water. He wasn't just looking for quantity. He went specifically to those. There's a reason why John didn't say he got some water. He says Jesus specifically requested the, the pots used for the Jewish rites of purification. John is, is intentional to include that detail. Why? So that we would know that Jesus is not just turning water into wine. He is making a point. What is his point? Jesus is taking something that was always used for religious purification. And he is annihilating that type of thinking. He is essentially saying to you and to me, your religious goodness will never make you right with God. You need to be transformed like water into wine. He is pulling the rug out from under religion, and he is saying, you need something in your life that only I can do. You need a miracle. You cannot clean yourself up enough for God. You need God to restore you. You need God to save you. So he is making a statement about the futility of religion and the need for a personal transformation in Christ. That's what he's doing. And so they scoop the, what they thought was water, take it to the master of the, of the feast, and he tastes it and says, who saves the best wine for the end? You, do, you put the good wine up front so that when they get drunk, they won't know what the bad wine tastes like. And so he says, we, why are you saving the good wine until now? Another indication, he ain't paying much attention. And it goes to show that when Jesus does a miracle, he never does it halfway. He never gives you the least. He always brings the best. Always. So that when Jesus restores us, it's not just the same as trying to clean our own life up. It's better. It's the best. You can't clean your life up enough. You need Jesus to transform you. You can't heal your own problems. You need Jesus to do it for you. See, our lives are like that water in that clay pot. It's dirty. It's nasty. There's not a, a Jewish man or woman in this day that would have ever drinking anything from that jar. It represented the sin of our lives washing away and, and collecting in that jar. It represented sin. It represented dirt, impurity, awful stuff. And Jesus said, I'm going to take that which is awful and I'm going to make it something great. And that is the story of our lives. For those of us who call Jesus Lord and Savior, that's what happened to us. We were like dirty water that he turned into wine. Why? Did Jesus, for his very first miracle, turn water into wine so that we would know what he came to do? He came to say religion 
will not cut it. Showing up to church, reading your Bible, saying a few prayers, going through all the routines, that's not enough. You need a transformation that starts deep within you, something that you can't do for yourself. You need Jesus to do it for you. It comes through surrender. Do whatever he says. God, I bring you my life. Do with it what you will. And he takes that dirtiness, that impurity, all the sins you've ever committed, all the bad you've done, he takes it and he transforms it into something that blesses everyone else. It turns into something that represents what? The favor of God. You are the wine if you're a believer in Christ. You are the picture of God's blessing. You are proof that God's favor is real. Because you're the wine. So at the end of this, look at this last piece, and I'm going to get out of here. In verse 11, it says, uh, the, first, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, there was a lot of people, his disciples even, who followed Jesus. They were with him. In other words, they, they followed him in the sense that they went where he went. In this moment, they saw his glory, and they believed in who he was. So here's the question I have for you today. To a degree, you're all following him. You're showing up to where he is, right? You're showing up to church. You're showing up around his people. You're showing up. You know about him. In that sense, you might be like some of his disciples. They were with him, but they hadn't believed in him yet. So my question for you is, do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the one and only way that you can be saved, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can be made clean, and you can be made right with God. Do you believe in him as the Savior? If you don't, I would be honored to give you that opportunity. So I'm going to ask everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to respond to God's truth right now. And the reason I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes is because it makes the room dark. It gives you a, a private moment at the end of this message. And so as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you would say, you know what, Andy, that's me. You just described me. I feel like I am dirty. I feel like I'm not pure. I feel like I've tried to earn my way to God. I've tried to impress God with my good behavior, but it doesn't work. If that's you, I want you to say this prayer in your heart. Say it quietly. No one has to hear you but God. Say, dear God, I admit I'm a sinner. I'm unrighteous. I'm impure. And Jesus... I confess my belief in you, that you are the Son of God. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead so that I could receive forgiveness and eternal life. And so, Jesus, today I am asking you to save me. I'm asking you to turn the water of my life into the wine of your favor and your grace. Jesus, would you save me today? Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. For more information and to find out more about our church, please visit us at sugarhillchurch.com.